everyone, and welcome to episode 70, that's 7-0, of UConn 360. That is the only podcast known to science or magic that covers the University of Connecticut from each and every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the four corners of Connecticut today, I am your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me as always are my colleagues Tyler Silverio. Hi, everyone. Julie Bartuka. We're not actually in the four corners. You say that every time. We're like clumped in central northeastern Connecticut. Wow. Way to way to break the mystery. <laughs> I'm actually in New York. So oh, You're wow. in New York? Yeah. Have you been in New York this whole time? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, That's, my God. Uh, where I'm from. <laughs> I'm really good at this. I'm like a boss. <laughs> so, so wait. Let's go back. So Tom's really been lying. <laughs> well, it's not, a, it's not a lie if you don't know. Oh, Yeah. So, so we, qu- we should have known, though, because we interviewed Tyler and we didn't know where he was. So We're quick. just too old and crazy. Okay. Ken, where are you? I'm in the Mansfield Center Bureau, as always, having been poked and prodded all day today and pronounced in peak health. All right. Good to hear. Speaking of health, uh, as you're listening to this, I hope this hasn't changed too much, but... Um, the uh, student positive rate for COVID-19 has dipped below 1% as of early October. So um, things here have actually been going pretty well, fingers crossed. And uh, we've only got about six weeks of in-person instruction left, which is it's wild to think that. But lots of other stuff is going on here, too. It's not just COVID stuff. Julie. Well, I'm going to talk about COVID stuff. All right. But in a different way. So the Office of the Vice President for Research just awarded several grants to teams across the university, including at UConn Health, for their projects related to the coronavirus. And I just thought this was really neat because there are people from things like molecular and cell biology all the way through the disciplines to uh, digital media and design doing these projects. So there's some DMD people teaming up on a surveillance program. There's some detection programs. And then there's researchers who are, you know looking at the virus itself. So people are using their expertise all across the university to help address this crisis. And there's a second funding cycle actually open to a more expanded scope. So smaller scale projects, longer term projects with awards up to $10,000 with applications due Friday the 16th. So if you're interested in that, I know this is going to be only two days before that, but you can find out more at ovpr.ucon.edu. Very nice. And also sort of COVID-related, Jack Rowe, who used to be the chairman of the Board of Trustees at UConn, uh, and he's currently uh, on the faculty at Columbia University. So like Tyler, he's also in New York. He and his wife donated a million dollars to specifically for uh, to aid students who have experienced financial hardship because of the pandemic. So uh, take a look at today.ucon.edu for details about that. That's a very generous uh, donation from Jack Rowe. He was chairman of the board when I was covering UConn as a reporter. I got to know him then, and uh, I, I like him a lot, and this is a, a class move from, from Jack and his wife, Valerie. We've got a lot of interesting stuff today. You know, um, this is a time of year when a lot of people might feel down, right? You know, because of the pandemic and stress, and you might almost say they have the blues. And speaking of the blues, Ken, you've got an interesting tale for us about a film that was previously thought lost, but has been discovered. Uh, Yes, Sam and Ann Charters traveled throughout the South in the 1950s and 1960s uh, looking for the bluesmen, those musicians who performed and really originated the blues sound that we are so familiar with uh, these days. Sam started writing books because he couldn't find anything about those musicians, and he went out and found them and recorded them while Ann took photos, which appeared on the albums that they 
uh, produced uh, largely for the Folkways records early on and for others later on. Just as there were no books, after Sam traveled for a while, he realized there was no film about the blues. And so in 1962, he and, and Ann returned to the South and decided they were going to make a film. That film became lost to history because it was only seen by a few people. They had a shoestring budget. They drove around with a camera and did the work all by themselves. That film was recently rediscovered. And now there's a documentary produced by Document Records, which is a record label in the United Kingdom that specializes in releasing American blues and roots music. There's a whole backstory to all of this, and that's what we're going to hear about right now. There is a new documentary film called Searching for Secret Heroes that traces the making of what is considered the first film about blues music. The 1962 film, simply titled The Blues, was made by Samuel Charters, a foundational scholar of the blues whose writings, field research, and recordings helped to launch the revival of blues and folk music in the 1960s and 70s. The Samuel and Ann Charters Archives of Blues and Vernacular African-American Musical Culture is part of the archives and special collections at the Yukon Library. Ann Charters is a professor emerita of American literature at UConn and traveled with Sam throughout the South in the 1950s and 60s, assisting with his recording of blues musicians and taking photos for the albums her husband produced, most often for the Smithsonian Folkways label. After the blues was made, a companion soundtrack was issued, but the 25-minute film was never released commercially. Few people saw the film and most copies were lost. The musicians on both the film and the record included Furry Lewis, Gus Cannon, Pink Anderson, Sleepy John Estes, and others. In 2012, Sam Charters traveled to his family's ancestral homeland of Scotland, where he had located a long-sought 1794 book written by his family namesake. The bookstore happened to be around the corner from the warehouse of Document Records, an American Roots music label owned by Gary Atkinson. On that day, Gary's wife Jillian happened to be outside of the document building when she met Sam Charters, whose books and recordings the Atkinsons had first found as teenagers. I looked up and noticed Jillian coming towards the building with this elderly chap. I basically thought, oh no. Just said, Gary, this is Sam Charters. Yeah. All of the cliches, time froze. Sam, accompanied by his son and daughter-in-law, joined the Atkinsons for lunch. And during their meal, Gary asked Sam whatever happened to the blues film. Sam told him that he had recently found a copy of the film and that it appeared to be needing restoration. Gary noted that his son George was a filmmaker and thought that if the blues could be digitized, it might be possible to restore the film. Sam returned to the United Kingdom with Anne the following year with a digital copy of the film and George was able to restore the film. I wanted to ask him about the making of the film. I probably had it in, a, in my mind to maybe transcribe the interview into writing and, and perhaps do an article or something like that. But by the time it finished, Sam was such a dream to interview. I dared myself to think that we could possibly turn this into a, a documentary. It was a singer from Memphis, Furry Lewis, who played a wonderful version of John Henry with a slide on the strings of his guitar. And I realized that most of the time blues singers sit and sing. And there really isn't much to, to film. You film the background, you film the neighborhood, but you don't just film somebody sitting and singing. But Furry, with this dance of his slide on the strings, I wanted to capture that. 
and I thought it was worth trying once again to come to the heart of this music with a film. And I thought, why not try? When Sam began to talk about the idea of making a film of the bluesmen that he'd been recording, it was the spring of 1962, and we were far from the South. We were actually in New Hampshire, way up in New Hampshire, where I was teaching, my first college job teaching, and he came home from one of his trips to New York and said that he had the idea of making a film about the blues men that we had been talking about and that he'd been recording. And I'd been taking pictures of for his album covers. And I thought it was a great idea. How on earth do you make a film? I knew that simply you had to have a camera. So I went and bought a used 16 millimeter wind-up camera at a pawn shop. And then I spent the spring of that year practicing with it, photographing local fairs, photographing just anything to learn how to use the camera. What the blues doesn't say is that the great problem creating the blues was racial segregation and discrimination. The, what they face, this wall of hostile, violent anger at every phase in their lives, totally controlled their lives. So from that, I segued into this sequence of Hate signs, blacks only, colored only, white only, even a merry-go-round in New Orleans, because that was what in Baby Tate's thought. I asked Baby Tate to record these long instrumentals, the long guitar solo, simply knowing that I would use it in the background. And he did the wonderful solo harmonica sections that opened the film as the background music. We did these later inside the house, Annie taking the notes, myself holding the microphone, as I often did so that the singer couldn't get too close. And uh, Baby Tate's wife and child are in another room because the child was a little fussy. And Baby Tate was sitting at one side of the room and I was holding the microphone. And I looked out the window of his, as you saw, very shabby house. And I saw a white man, a large white man, coming up the front walk with a pistol. And he didn't knock. He simply pushed open the door and, and came into the house. And at the same time, I heard the same sound of a door being pushed open in the kitchen. And I realized that it was the sheriff. He had a badge. And it was his deputy in the back. And he looked at me, Annie holding her notebook. I'm holding the microphone. Baby Tate's holding his guitar. And he said, I hear they're selling illegal whiskey in here. And he and his deputy went through the whole house while we sat there, the feet stamping through their bedroom, through the stairs. And then at the end, he looked at me, he looked at Annie, he looked at baby Tate, and he went, went to the door, and as he and the deputy were going out the door, he turned to me and said, They sure got rhythm, don't they? And I realized that this was what Baby Tate lived with. And there's a marvelous black and white photo that Annie took five minutes later as part of the documentation. There's a photo of Baby Tate and his wife. He's got his guitar and the child on the porch outside the house. And their faces are stricken 
with fear, with apprehension. And what I knew, what Annie knew, was that the moment we drove to the end of the street with our little car, that the sheriff was going to come back, and they knew it too. And so I feel that the baby Tate sequence has such a resonance for that whole theme I wanted to have of showing what the blues was as a picture of a life. I think there's also, which I hope Gary's captured as well, just setting the actual film, The Blues, apart. They came and stayed with us for about a week, perhaps one of the best weeks of my life. I absolutely loved having them around, still possessed of this energy. I do remember, uh, you know, being in New Orleans and waiting for the film, and you had a little flirt kind of going with the, the guy at the film lab who was helping. Did I? Yeah. I can't remember that. Are you <laughs> <He> sure? <remembers> <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I know, not very much. It's and we were playing years. softball and that I remember. waiting to get the film back, yeah. and were we going to... We had no idea if no. the film even came out. Yeah, that's right. And we, it we did. We no look. The film process. And we looked at it, well. and suddenly... Ah, there it was. We had done our jobs. (laughs) (laughs) They had set up in their viewing room two movie theater seats with an aisle between. So Annie sat in one and I sat in the other and we held hands across the aisle and our film started. And we were stunned. It was what we dreamed it would be with all its faults, with all its imperfections. It was telling the story that we wanted to tell. Well, that was uh, that was great stuff. And that, that archive is a, is a big treasure here at UConn. We're very lucky to have it. I did a whole summer of music from that archive uh, several years ago. And there's interest in what the film is about because it hasn't been seen. Uh, Smithsonian Magazine is working on a piece as we speak, and we'll let you know when that comes out. Very nice. Cool. I know I said uh, that there's a lot more going on here than COVID stuff, and I'm just going to make apparently COVID segues to everything I say on this episode, which is great. It's been a big COVID week. (laughs) It has been a big COVID week. One of the things, and I mentioned the the student uh, positivity rate being very low, which is good. And, uh, you know, before the semester, there was something called the Yukon Promise that uh, everyone was asked to pledge. Tyler, you probably did this. And the idea was you sort of pledge to uh, maintain the, the health guidelines and also to treat each other with respect, that kind of thing. Uh, and that, that put me in mind of the, you know, the student code of conduct, which is a big part of, of, of every university, as far as I know. And then I got to thinking, when, when did we have our first student code of conduct? And I think the answer will surprise you, surprise and enlighten you. There's been an informal uh, code of student conduct dating back to the earliest days of the university, but the very first student handbook was published in 1921 that included 19 rules, mostly for freshmen. Among those rules were never walk on the grass on campus. You had to wear a blue and white beanie, which was the freshman cap, at all times uh, until after spring break. I knew Um, about the beanies, but I didn't know they were mandated. Mandated. As a freshman, you had to greet every person you encountered on campus with, quote, a cheery hello. And you also had to carry a box of matches with you at all times in the fall and be prepared to light the pipes of upper-class students. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also, no student was allowed to wear clothing with any letters or numerals except those of the college. Huh. 
they probably there probably weren't a lot of unless there were other schools. I'm guessing there wasn't like you know polo back then, so you weren't like yeah, wearing a not. brand on your shirt. Probably not. Like, wow, you have to be ready to light some pipes. That's that's wrong. The beanies and the the staying off the lawn would become a theme as the code of conduct developed. In 1926, freshmen were then required to doff their beanies respectfully when they encountered members of the faculty. Okay. And then uh, uh, shortly after that, there was a, another uh, ban on playing golf on the Great Lawn. <laughs> for the very first time in 1934, the handbook included a section of rules specifically for women students, uh, which prohibited male escorts or calls from men until after the Thanksgiving recess. I thought you were going to say like before a certain time at night. No, they, couldn't, like, they had to wait until after Thanksgiving. To have like, Why? I don't know. You have to get to know each other better. I is this the one Mildred French? Is that Mildred makes uh, many appearances in this, uh, starting in the thirties. Is this the patent leather shoe rules and things like that? No, there are there. It's more like curfew things. Like so, okay. so Holcomb Hall was the women's dormitory at the time, and that was locked at curfew every night. And then, except with the exception of nights when there was a uh, school-sanctioned dance. But Mildred also uh, prohibited women from hitchhiking, saying it reflected mm-hmm. badly on the university. And then in 1948, this was a big one. 1948, women students were allowed to wear jeans, <gasps> but only on Saturdays. <laughs> Mildred P. French would hate what I'm wearing right now. <laughs> Workout leggings and a hoodie on. But wait, do you remember what I'm referring to with the patent leather shoes? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was, I I had a uh, a man that I wrote a story about who actually unfortunately passed away um, last year, but he had memories of being at UConn in the 40s. And he told me about how the women couldn't, they had to put newspapers on the laps of the boys when they were riding to Willimantic in cars. They couldn't sit on their laps directly they had to put a newspaper down and they couldn't wear patent leather shoes because quote they reflect well and and men maybe maybe related to that uh it was this shocked me women were not allowed to wear slacks or long pants in the student union until 1967 in the student union in the student union yeah (laughs) there were there were many of those kinds of guidelines in high schools and in colleges up until the 60s, when those things started to be disappeared uh, by the yeah. protest of students. Because my freshman year in college, we had beanies. And we said, no, no, no. And we stopped wearing them. And well, that, and that, you, and that went on everywhere. Women's lib, can Women. Are there rules about the men other than the beanies? Can men only wear certain things? Well, we used to have to wear a jacket and tie to get into the dining hall on Sunday. That's true. All yeah. right. Uh, yeah. On Sunday, th- there were there are all Love kinds Tyler, of rules. What are your like thoughts? All kinds of rules. The thing about like the student union, like, is how how do you know if you're gonna like be there? Like, you have to like change if you want to go in and like <laughs> a little bit during the day, or like. I think it was yeah. more like the decorum all the time. You would go to class, you wouldn't be in your pajamas. That's for sure. That's true. Can you imagine? The student conduct code now is is much more, I would say, straightforward in what it what it allows and doesn't allow. There's not a lot of like dress code stuff or you know you can't have gentlemen callers before thanksgiving that has that has gone away <laughs> you know what's kind of interesting though now it's more about like how you act and behave and back then maybe they just all were so well behaved that you didn't you didn't need those types of things they just had to police how you dressed yeah they were well behaved into the 60s 
<laughs> All went out the window. All went out the window. But anyway, little little glimpse into the past. Student conduct codes at UConn. If you have ever worn slacks in the student union and would like to tell us about it, um, <laughs> you can find us online at UConn Podcast or at main underscore old, where we'll post uh, old pictures from time to time. We just posted some of students in 1988, each of them looking very 1988. I liked those. And if you want to find me on Twitter.com, I am at TJ Breen. And also uh, check out today.uconn.edu for all kinds of news and updates and great information about this university. Tyler, is there anything you'd like to plug or inform people of? Yeah, last time, I'll, I'll do the same as last time, um, the Yukon FASA uh, social media. That's on Instagram. Um, we have meetings every uh, two weeks. There's actually a meeting next week we'll be doing, so if you're interested, check, check that out. Nice. Julie, what's going on with you? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter, and I wanted to plug friend of the pod, Marie Shanahan, a journalism professor. Her students have started a weekly newsletter um, with everything you need to know about the election. You can go to crashcourse.substack.com to subscribe. It's been kind of a sleepy election year, right? Not a lot of big news. Yeah, nothing going on. Just a normal run-of-the-mill election. Ken, where, where can people find you other than TikTok? Well, if, if, if you process my writings, then they get to see them on UConn Today, which is an ongoing issue. With, is that with, what your resume says, Tom? <laughs> writing processor? Writing processor. Processor of writing. And, of course, at 91.7 WHUS and stores, UConn Sound. Well, alternative streaming online at org Saturdays from 3 to 6. Uh, we'll play some music that we think is good. Very nice. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us, and uh, we'll see you back here in two weeks. Stay safe, everybody. Bye.